Father in heaven, we thank you so much um, that you desire to converse with us. And so much so that you left all of heaven to live among us, to have conversations that were transformational, not just informational. And Lord, I pray that this evening your spirit will guide our thoughts as we study your word. Lord, as we open its pages and flip through on our phones, may you truly be glorified in all that we do. We thank you so much for your many blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we're going to look at a familiar passage from the book of Daniel. But we're going to look at that passage uh, a little bit differently than many times we have looked at it before. When I mention Daniel chapter 2, most people think of what? And by the way, I, I ask questions and I look for responses. Um, so when you look at Daniel chapter 2, most of the times when you've studied Daniel chapter 2, you tend to look what? What's kind of the emphasis? Okay, prophecy, the image, which is, helps us understand the prophecy. And we kind of jump to the prophecy and we miss contextually what really gives force to the prophecy. Okay? So we're not just going to look at Daniel chapter 2, 3, but we're also going to look at Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to look at it contextually. We're going to look at it systematically. Okay? Step by step. Because it's not just about prophecy. It's actually about God and His desire for the conversion of a king. And, and many times we lose that fact when we look and we jump directly to the prophecy first. And there's a lot of life lessons within those passages of Scripture that help us understand the, the urgency of the prophecies that, that come in their context. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Now we're going to look tonight at Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to start by looking at a conversation for the ages. Tomorrow, we're going to look at a convicting witness. And then we're going to move to the conversion of a king. And, and there's a process that God is taking this king on for his own benefit. Okay? For his salvific benefit that he may be saved. But notice with me Daniel chapter 5. You know the story, so we're not, I'm not going to kind of read through all of it. There are certain passages we're going to highlight, but I want you to notice something in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, by the way, contextually, is about who? Does anybody remember who's about? Okay. Belshazzar, right? Belshazzar has a problem. Okay. Uh, and it's not just with the party. It, it really goes back to who he is and, and what he's become. Okay? And it's interesting that after the hand comes out and writes, he can't understand it. And so Daniel is ultimately brought into his midst. And I want you to notice what Daniel has to say, okay, to Belshazzar. Notice verse 17. This is Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to someone else. Daniel knew this kingdom was coming to an end. He says, however, 
I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to whom? So this is interesting. Daniel makes a shift. He doesn't go right to Belshazzar, but he's going to bring up the experience of who? His great-grandfather. Because it has a lot of importance. Notice he goes on, he says, Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him, whomever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. Now notice, he goes on, he says, he was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. That's key. And that he sets over it whomever he wishes. And then it says, verse 22, You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you what? Now this is interesting. Belshazzar's in a rock and a hard place. He's between a rock and a hard place. He knows the kingdom's coming to an end. Something was written on the wall. And it's interesting that Daniel points out the life of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and says, listen, look at all the things that happened to him. And this was an example to you. You knew all this. Okay? But he says you did what? You knew all this, but you did not humble your heart. Okay? Here's the point. Belshazzar knew what we're going to study this weekend. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters about what you do with what you know. Okay? He knew everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't do anything with that knowledge. So in this series this weekend, believe it or not, we have a choice. We're going to learn some of the things that Belshazzar had learned in relationship to how God specifically dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to be in the same place that Belshazzar is by the end of it. What are you going to do with that information? Okay? And so this is, to me, this helps me understand personally why Daniel 2, 3, and 4 are so important, not just prophetically, but just in how God is going to deal with a pagan king. Now, I want to share something with you really quick, and that is sometimes we look at some of these stories in the Bible And we think, well, God was dealing with a pagan king, so it's only pagans that he deals with this way. You know, we kind of do that in our minds. We kind of separate how he deals with a Christian versus how he deals with somebody that that isn't a Christian, that doesn't even know the true God. And yet, you're going to find time and time again, God, sure, he varies things a little bit, but there are many key principles that he uses in approaching Christian, Gentile, doesn't matter. He uses these principles. 
And the first principle I want to talk to you about is conversation. Okay? Um, notice with me Daniel chapter 2. All of us have conversations on a regular basis. Okay? Whether we're at the grocery store, whether we're visiting parents like we just did over the 4th of July weekend, we had lots of conversations. God loves to converse with people. God loves to have conversations with people. And God's conversations, though, are transformative. They're not just informative. Okay? And what God is about to do in the life of this king is going to change this king and the course of his life, his thoughts, his ideas, for the remainder of his life. Because that's what a conversation with God looks like. And so this conversation that he's going to have literally is an example, not only to Belshazzar, but it's an example to all of us in how God desires to converse with us. And within that, we see the context of prophecy. Not outside of that context, but within that context. Now, Daniel chapter 2. Everybody knows. What's Daniel chapter 2 about? We said. It's about what? Okay, it's about a dream. It's about an image. It's about God, believe it or not, God is actually setting, okay, the context for the conversation in Daniel chapter 2. Now, that's important. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to set the context. God is going to set the context. And this is a real conversation that God's about to have. Notice with me Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at a few things first before we really dive into the conversation. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had what? Had dreams. Okay, we worked, I worked and lived in the Middle East for three years. In Beirut, Lebanon. And uh, dreams in the Middle East are still very vital to life in the Middle East. No different than when God approached Nebuchadnezzar with his dream. Okay? So I want to share something with you in relationship to God approaching Nebuchadnezzar with this dream. But before that, I want you to understand the mindset of King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice with me Daniel chapter 2. And I'm actually going to go back. Okay? To actually, we'll go to Daniel chapter 3. I'll get into this more specifically tomorrow, but I want you to notice a verse. Daniel chapter 3, verse 15. God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and gives him a dream. That, by the way, is within a very specific context. God helps us understand the mindset of the king so that we can understand clearly why he approached the king in this manner. Okay? It's like God knows what you're thinking right now. God knows how you're thinking. God knows you're thinking before you think it. Okay? So God has that context that He's dealing with in His conversations with us. It's no different with King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice the king's mindset, though. We all know King Nebuchadnezzar is a what? A world-ruling king. Okay? Everybody was subservient to whom? To the king. If the king says it, it is. If the king wants something to happen, it's going to happen. Okay? 
Now notice, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 15, we get a perspective of the king's mind as a world ruler. Notice verse 15. Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be what? Cast into a furnace of blazing fire. Now notice the last phrase. Specifically, he says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, and what God is there who can deliver you out of what? My hands. What does that tell you about the king's mindset? Just that one verse. We'll get more into it tomorrow. But what, what does that tell you about the king's mindset? Who does he really think he is? He thinks he's God. He's a world-ruling king. He owes nobody nothing. And everybody is a servant to him. So in his mind, over time, as a world-ruling king, he develops a God complex. We do this today, believe it or not. We have our own lives, we have our own careers, we're going our own direction, and nobody's going to tell me any different. And in some ways, we become gods to ourselves. Now, there's another thing that leads to this God complex. What did they worship in Babylon? In Babylon, they worshiped what? Images. They had a big temple. They had God Marduk in the temple. Matter of fact, if you read in Psalms, chapter 115, when I served in India for a year as a student missionary, we'd have people worshiping trees and rocks right outside the house, and we'd have a little, a little temple that somebody built. And they, they, you know, they put a little figurine in that temple. And, and everybody would come by that temple every single day. We built an oven in our front yard. And people would say to us, is that your temple? And we'd have to show them, no, it makes bread. Okay? But that was expected. Idolatry, image worship was very important to the culture, to the worldview. So, okay, so here's the thing. In Psalms 115, God says those who make images and worship them will become like them. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has a God complex. This is his mindset. He runs the world and nobody's going to tell him every different, anything different. So keep that in mind when God comes to him. But I want you to notice Daniel chapter 2 for a minute. Daniel chapter 2, and I want to go to verse 29. So he has a God complex. He thinks he's God. There's no one greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is soon going to find out that's going to be a different picture than what he currently thinks. Now notice verse 29. It says, as for you, this is Daniel speaking later to Nebuchadnezzar. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place when? In the future. So think about this. You're Nebuchadnezzar. You run the world. You think you're God. But yet in the, in the bedroom, in his private place where nobody is, He's thinking about what? He's thinking about the future. How many of you think about the future? 
Why do you think about the future? Huh? To what? To plan. Okay. Why do you need to plan? To you, it's... What was that? Okay. You think about the future because you do not know the future. That's something very human. So even in our own little kingdoms that we tend to build, we're still very human, though sometimes we don't think we are. Okay? So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He thinks he's God, but he's doing something very human. He's thinking about what? The future. So this is the perfect opportunity for God to introduce himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Oftentimes, God introduces Himself to us when we're in those moments of humanity. When we know and recognize we're only what? Human. Is a perfect opportunity for God to begin a conversation with us. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's God, but he's in his bedroom doing something very human. He's thinking about his kingdom and he's making plans and he's thinking about the future because he doesn't know it. So it's in that context, follow, it's in that context that God says, now let me introduce myself to you. For who I am. Now notice how God introduces himself. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Understanding the mindset of the king, God is now going to introduce himself to the king while the king is thinking about the future which he doesn't know. Yet he still thinks he's God. It says, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had what? Dreams. So God is going to introduce himself to the king through what means? Through dream. Okay? Now, a dream's important, but a dream is just the beginning. It's to get the king's attention. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. God doesn't just do this with pagans. God often, even with Christians, he has to get our attention. So many times he uses sometimes nature to get our attention. Sometimes he uses our own experience to get our attention. Sometimes he uses history to get our attention. Okay? Notice with me Exodus chapter 3. I love this example. Exodus chapter 3 is all about Moses. Remember Moses? 40 years, right? He's preparing for ministry. Actually, for him, he's just taking care of the sheep. But the time comes where God has to get his attention. So what does God do to get his attention? I love this. Notice verse 2. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a what? Of a bush. And then he goes on and says, And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was what? Not consumed. Think about it. Would God get your attention if you walked out of this building and you saw all those bushes on fire, but they weren't burning? Would you just have to look? Or could you just walk on by? No, I've seen that before. Okay? God, oftentimes, to start a conversation, has to grab our attention. 
Okay? Just like Moses, taking care of the sheep. God has to get his attention. Burning bush, nature. God used nature to get his attention. But notice in Exodus chapter 3 that God doesn't leave it there. Notice verse 3 says, So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned. As soon as Moses turns aside, God speaks. God now converses. But God had to get his attention first so that clearly he was going to listen to what God had to say. So how is God going to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention so that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately will enter into a conversation with the king? Notice with me Daniel chapter 2. He dreamed a dream. And the Bible specifically says that he, he did he remember the dream? Uh, no, he didn't remember the dream. And matter of fact, the dream was so what? That it woke him from his sleep. Okay? He was troubled. Something within that dream troubled Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, God was getting Nebuchadnezzar's attention so that God could have a transformative conversation with the king. In his mercy, he does this. Okay? In Daniel chapter 2, notice the dream really quick. We're all familiar with it, but I'll just read through it. It says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, and the statue was large and of extraordinary splendor. It was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out. Notice this. Make a mental note of this. It was cut out with what? Without hands. That is really significant. If you are a world-ruling king and everybody is subservient to you and something happens without hands, guess what? You have no control over it. The last thing the king wants, a world-ruling king, is not to have control. But in this scenario, he has no control. He's learning who the control really belongs to. And this is troubling. What also is troubling is ha what happens to that image. Notice it goes on here. It says, that stone that was cut out without hands, it struck the statue on its feet, and it what? Of the iron and clay, and it ultimately what? What does it do to the statue? It what? It grinds it up. Now think about this for a moment. You're a world... Let's go through the scenario for a little bit. You're a world-ruling king. Everything you are to have control over. You now have a dream that, by the way, centers around what you worship. You worship images. Your worldview is through image worship. Your belief systems are established through image worship. So God approaches you in a conversation and says, I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to use an image. He's literally going right to the core issue. And then he pulls a rock, by the way, that is without hands. In other words, there's nothing the king can do. And it smashes the image and it grinds it into dust. What is God going to tell this king? 
Think about it for a minute. If all you see, you see the world through image worship and your belief systems are established on image worship, if the image is destroyed, what is God in essence telling you? Everything you believe in, everything you see, the lens you see through, it's literally but dust. And by the way, a wind just comes along and and it's gone. Now let me ask you, if God showed you that that's what, what your life was right now, would it get your attention? If God came and said, listen, everything you're standing on, everything you believe in is but dust. And by the way, you have no control over it. And you're the world ruling king. I think you would wake up struggling from that kind of dream. As a matter of fact, so much so that you would be just like the king and you'd be like what? I want answers. I want answers. I want to understand this because everything that I've learned, everything that I know, everything that's made me who I am, by the way, a God to myself, has literally been reduced to nothing. This is how God is beginning the conversation. Okay? Now, what I love about this is that God's in the business of taking from nothing and making it something. When you look at the world that, that He created, it was created from what? Nothing. God is in the business of taking things in a point of nothingness and making them something. But oftentimes, what He has to do is He has to reduce some things to nothing so that He can make them everything He wants to make them. Are you following? This is what He's doing in the mind of the King. Believe it or not, God is clearly getting in the mind of this King. He's already in mind. Just through this process. Okay? So the King wakes up. Now here's the thing. I, I wanna, let me mention something. The reason why I mentioned nature earlier in Scripture, there are two principles in dealing with revelation. And we don't have time to go over them. But clearly, there's general revelation and there's specific revelation. Okay? General revelation is general because it doesn't have any speech or language connected to it to make it specific. Okay? Let me give you an example. Go to Psalms 19. Notice with me Psalms 19. Psalms 19. Notice verse 1. I'll just start with verse 1. It's the verse we're familiar with. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, there is no speech, nor are there what? Words where their voice is not heard. That's just one example. There's another one in Romans. In other words, through nature, we see God's power. 
we see, in a sense, generally speaking, God's love. And that general revelation is everywhere on planet Earth, and God can always use it whenever He wants to, to get our attention. Why does He want to get our attention? So that ultimately He can speak to us specifically. He gets us to the place where we're ready to listen to Him specifically. And he's doing this with Nebuchadnezzar. This is the example. And he does it throughout Scripture in a lot of different places we could take a look at. So through the dream, which is general revelation, he clearly gets the king's attention. But the king doesn't understand, okay, what specifically the dream means. But God has clearly gotten his what? His attention, right? I mean, literally, everything that he's standing on in his mind is like nothing. God's telling him it's nothing, okay? So he wakes up and he's like, I need to know. You know, sometimes you read books like that. I I got done reading a book called um, I Dared to Call Him Father when we were working in the Middle East. And and there's this, this woman who high-ranking officer, or her husband was, in the Pakistani government, and she has a dream. But she doesn't know specifically what the dream means, and so the book is about her journey in coming to the Word of God, to specific revelation, and really finding answers for what that dream was. What was that dream given for? Clearly to get her attention. And it set her out on a journey to find answers. And that's where God wants all of us. He wants us on a journey asking questions, finding answers, and looking to Him ultimately. He'll lead us through the process to Him who ultimately has the answers. See, notice with me Daniel chapter 2 again. So he wakes up, he wants to know the dream. Notice it says, then the Chaldeans, by the way, So what does he do? He goes to those closest to him. He goes to the wise men. It says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Okay? So so ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar goes to his closest friends, the, the wise men. Now, the wise men should have the answer. They need to have the dream, and they need to have the interpretation. But what ultimately takes place? There's a conversation that takes place between them. God is listening. And in the process, they come to a realization. The realization is the realization we all need to come to. Notice with me verse 10 of Daniel chapter 2. It says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king. I love how God is so gracious and He's so merciful. He gives him this troubling dream that literally is in his head. His whole world has been shattered through this dream. And then God, in His mercy, gives him the opportunity to go to the wise men, but in the end, the wise men only exalt who? This is outside of us. He literally goes to these wise men, and these wise men ultimately point him back to the need for someone other than man to help him with his issues. 
That's the bottom line. So God takes away his worldview, he takes away his belief system, and he ultimately, in the end, takes away all the things he knows and leaves him standing there with what? Nothing. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where God has literally taken everything away. And you are standing there with nothing. I want to tell you something. Those are some of the best times of my life. Because God is in the business of taking from nothing and making it something. But many times he has to get us to the place of nothing before something can happen. And he's literally doing this with the king. He's getting him to the place where the king is going to be all ears and not very much mouth. You know, my dad would always say to me, you have two ears and what? One mouth. Which means we need to be able to listen more than we speak. But oftentimes when we approach God, we talk all the time. We ask question after question after question. How many times have you ever in your own personal Bible study stopped to let God ask you the questions? It's a whole different scenario when that happens. Let me give you one example. Turn with me to Job. Powerful example. Oftentimes we go to Job and we look at Job's experience We talk about the pain that he went through and we talk about the suffering he went through and we look at this book for words of encouragement and affirmation during those times in which we suffer. And we should, rightfully so. But I want you to notice something in chapter 38 of Job. This is the first time you actually hear God speak. So through the book of Job, except for the first couple chapters, the great controversy... Through the whole scenario, it's like God is literally standing there listening to people talk about Him and their ideas of Him, and He's not saying anything. And then in Job chapter 38, God opens His mouth. And here, God is framing the conversation. See, up till this point, God wasn't framing the conversation Humanity was framing the conversation. It's not until you get to 38 that divinity now is framing the conversation. And you would think to yourself, man, Job went through so much. But notice, God's going to have a conversation with Job. And notice what he says right here. Verse 2, I'll just start there. God opens up and he says, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Have you ever had God ask you that question? Personally? Then he goes on. I love this. Now gird up your loins like a man. And I will ask you and you instruct me. And what does God do? Through the next two or three chapters, he's asking question after question after question. And does Job have an answer? No. No. Job doesn't have an answer. Matter of fact, Job tells of his experience. Notice Job chapter 42. But this is where a real transformative conversation with God takes place. 
It says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. That's powerful. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Who does that sound like? If you read Psalms 139, David comes to the same conclusion. He says, such things, this knowledge, it is too wonderful for me, and I cannot attain to it. Comes to the same place in his life. But it's the place God wanted him to be so that he could do something greater with him. Verse 4, hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's one thing to hear, it's another thing to see. See God moving, see God leading, see God guiding, not just sitting and hearing it from everybody else, but actually seeing it for yourself. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job literally comes to the same place that Nebuchadnezzar is being brought to. Now, this is where specific revelation comes into play. So he's there with nothing. He's gone to his friends. He realizes everything he's been raised with is nothing. His friends have not the answers. Only God is going to have the answers. But he doesn't know where that's going to come from. And he's so angry, he wants to what? He wants to kill everybody. Like that's going to solve anything. And then Daniel comes into the picture. Now to me, this is so vital. Because this is where God is about to speak. God gets his attention. But now God is about to speak. And there's a difference. There's a time in our lives when God does things to get our attention. But it's all for the purpose of getting us to the place where we're ready to listen to Him speak. Because it's in that specific instruction that life is transformed. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When God speaks, not us, when God speaks, things happen. Things change. Our lives are different. Our direction and our goals are different. Everything is different when God speaks. The reason sometimes everything stays the same is because we're listening to each other thinking we are listening to God. We're not. We need to allow God to frame the conversation like he's doing here in our own personal lives, in our own personal devotions. Allow God to frame the conversation. Things will be different, vastly different. You may end up in places you never thought. You know, there was a point in my life when I first became, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I didn't really grow up as Seventh-day Adventist. I had, my dad was Seventh-day Adventist. He had come back to the church, but I really didn't have anything involved with it until I visited my dad on weekends. My mom had divorced my dad, 
And uh, I would visit, and one of the rules was we go to church on Saturday. Okay? And so I did, because I wanted to be with my dad. Well, when I was 17 and I made my decision to follow Christ, it was revolutionary. What things started to take place. But you know, sometimes that starts to wear off after a while because you sit in the church sometimes and you get into a habit of just listening to others speak. And I got into that place where I heard someone say this and another person say that and another person say this over there two years into my Christian experience. And I'm going, Lord, I just want to hear from you. Not that I disagreed with what was being said or that I had some challenges with it, but I knew I wanted it from him. And so the Lord said, okay, I'm going to take you to India where they worship trees and rocks. And, and, and I'm thinking, you're taking me to a place that doesn't even have you. They don't study the Bible. All of this stuff happens in northern India. Crazy things happen. You want me to go there? He had to take me away from everything so that he could do something. And he's going to do this with Nebuchadnezzar. So he takes away everything. Now notice, I'm going to fast forward here. Notice Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. So Nebuchadnezzar has nothing. God has him exactly where he wants him. And now God is about to speak. Daniel and his friends come together, as you know, and they pray. And God does something miraculous. And we'll talk more about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And why their witness is so important in the life of this king. Because it has to do with conviction that we'll deal with more tomorrow. Conversation tonight, conviction tomorrow. And then conversion. But notice verse 19. Daniel has the answer. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a what? A night vision. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And we don't have time to get into all the specifics here. But think about it. Daniel, until this point, he's not a prophet. He's just a person. Just like you and I. But he's a person in captivity. But in captivity... Daniel knows where the answers are. Daniel goes to where the answers are. And God gives him the gift of prophecy. Why does God give Daniel the gift of prophecy? Because God is about to speak. And you know, as much as I do, biblically speaking, God does nothing unless He reveals to His what? His prophets, right? Those things that He wants revealed. He's going to share it with the prophets. And the prophets become what? His mouthpiece, so to speak, in a sense. So Daniel is given the gift of prophecy for the very purpose, for our benefit, but then and there it was for the king's benefit so that the king could get the specific revelation. This is so vital because it's been given to us by the prophets. It's God's voice to every single one of us. It's God's conversation to every single one of us. So now I want you to notice, I need three volunteers to help me with this. Notice with me Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. So God raises up Daniel. I want you to notice, I'm going to step down. 
I need three wonderful volunteers. Before I even read this, I want you to notice this. Are there three volunteers that are willing to come up here real quick? Read, thank you. And somebody in the back? And is there somebody else? Oh, Caitlin, come on up here. We'll make Caitlin God. <laughs> come on up here. I want to show you something. What you're about to read is written very specifically and has a very specific purpose to it. You want to come right up here. I want to show you something. Notice with me Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, 29, and 30. So I have God right here. Okay? And I have Daniel. And this is the way we typically view it, right here. And then we've got Nebuchadnezzar right here. Okay? How many would agree this is kind of how it works? Right? God raises up the prophet. The prophet speaks for God. The prophet is speaking to whom? Nebuchadnezzar. But is that really the way it's given to us? Notice with me Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, 29, and 30. Notice how a conversation goes, if it's really from God. It says, Daniel starts out to the king and he says, however, there is a what? There's a God. So who's first? God. Then, notice verse 29. He says, as for... As for who? So who's, who's that? Help me out here. King. So actually, it goes like this. Okay? Now, what's, what's next? Look at verse 30. He says what? But as for... Daniel is here. Why is this important? You tell me, why is this important? Because the message for the general, as prophecy, also implies personally Daniel. Yeah, it applies personally to Daniel. But think about it. If God approaches you with a dream, who is it really between the conversation? Who should be? Only us. It's only you. Okay? God raises up Daniel and he puts Daniel on the outside. Okay? So that ultimately the king clearly understands that this is what? This is a conversation between him and whom? And God. So the king is actually, doesn't really, sure, he hears from Daniel. But you know, we tend to exalt Daniel. Daniel's the last one that wants to be exalted. A true prophet always wants to stand on the outside of a conversation between God and his people, not on the inside. Always on the outside. So Daniel's here. Okay? So King, get this. This is a real conversation that's taking place between God and the king, and the king is understanding this very clearly. Why? Because he has nothing else to stand on. Everything else has been taken away. Everything that he's trusted has been taken away. So this is clearly a conversation between the king, king and God. So the rest of Daniel is in this framework. Okay? So what the king is going to do later is a result of this, not the other way around. 
Okay? So this order is important. Thank you very much. So notice with me verse 28, 29, 30. We'll read it quickly. It says, however, there is a God in heaven, right, who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. He has made known to whom? To Nebuchadnezzar. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is learning by this language. The true God is speaking, not Daniel. Sound familiar? Think about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Notice, I love what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. All the prophets would say the same thing if they're true prophets. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God which you heard from what? From us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its works in you who believe. The word of God performs the work in the life of the believer, not the word of Daniel, not the word of Paul, not the word of Peter, the Word of God is the one that does the work in those who believe. So clearly in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's he's in the position to listen. He's in the position to hear. And now God is speaking. So what ultimately takes place when God has a conversation with someone? Where God frames the conversation. Notice what happens. Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. He says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, what? What did he do? He fell on his face. Friends, and we, in our own personal Bible study time, have a real conversation with God where God is speaking and we are listening. You can't help but leave that time inside, internally, on your face. Sometimes you may be literally on your face because of what God was able to reveal to you through His Word, specifically to you. This is what king does. The king falls on his face. And notice it says, And he did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods. Notice, who's all the glory going to? Where is Nebuchadnezzar speaking? He's like, Daniel, great job. I really appreciate the fact that you were able to reveal this to me. The focus had nothing to do with Daniel. Daniel was out of the conversation a long time ago. And Daniel made sure of that by the way that he communicated. So clearly the king is like, your God is a God of gods, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then I want, and then he goes on, by the way, Daniel at the very end. Notice verse 45. Love this. It says, so the dream is true and its interpretation is what? Trustworthy. And Nebuchadnezzar agreed with that. Why did he agree with that? Because Nebuchadnezzar fell to his face. And he paid homage to the true God. 
Here's the point in this story. God is just beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. He takes away everything that he's standing on. He takes away all the people around him that he trusts or that he works with that are supposed to give him answers, realizes they can't do anything, literally strips away everything. And then God introduces his prophet, but Nebuchadnezzar's not listening to the prophet as if he's listening to a person. He's listening to who? God. God's having a conversation with the king. And it's just the two of them. Everything else has been blocked out. Now, when you get to Daniel chapter 3, you can begin to understand some of the struggles that Nebuchadnezzar goes through. Because clearly, God is in the head of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's where he should be with all of us. We should be listening to him daily. We should be taking his orders daily. We should be going the direction that he wants us to go daily. But for that to happen, many times he needs to have, all the time, a conversation with us regularly. Regularly. Those conversations, by the way, are transformative. They're not just about information. God is not giving the information to the king because he just wants him to be informed. He's preparing the king to be transformed, not just informed. We have a lot of people running around informed, but not many that are transformed. My question is, are they having this kind of conversation with God regularly, where God frames the conversation, God directs the process, God asks the questions, See, I've heard a lot of people say, and I've appreciated it, we just need to surrender. And, and to be honest with you, we do need to surrender. Daily we need to surrender. Paul says, I die daily. But many times that's left so vague. What does it mean to actually surrender? How does surrender actually take place? It's right here. Nebuchadnezzar had an idea of what he wanted. And God approached Nebuchadnezzar and said, no, but this is my idea. So what you have is you have a conflict between ideas. When we study the word of God, we bring information to it. But the thing is, and in many times as we study the word of God, we see sometimes there's conflict. I had this idea. God's revealing to me actually that it's this way. Now I have a what? A decision to make. Which way am I going to go? Who am I going to decide? Am I going to decide to stay in my track? Or am I going to switch tracks and run his course? This is what's beginning with the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And just like us, he fights it for a little while until he can fight it no longer. And God's going to do some major things in his life because there's opportunity and God sees it.
and takes advantage of it. And you know what? I want to tell you, there are people all around us that God is having conversations with on a regular basis. There are people all around us where God allows certain things in their lives. Why? To get their attention. So that he can have the same conversation with them that he is having with Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because God is not willing that any should be lost. But that all can come to repentance. But if we're not having the conversation ourselves with God on a regular basis, then how can we be aware of the conversations he's having with people outside of us? It's hard. But the more we come in contact with God and have a conversation like this with him, the more we're aware of it as it's happening to other people. And God will give us the wisdom to know how to intervene, just like he gave the wisdom to Daniel to intervene in that situation for God, for his voice to be heard in the midst of that conversation. So tomorrow we're going to look at conviction and where conviction plays a role in this conversation. But let's have a word of prayer. We're going to close it this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your many blessings. Lord, every time I take a look at Daniel chapter 2, and I just think about your desire for the king's eternal salvation. The things that, Lord, you wanted to teach him that he didn't know. Things clearly opposed to your ideas. But Lord, you had such mercy and tact. And yet you were very honest and straightforward with the king. Lord, please do that for each one of us. Lord, help us to learn to listen as we study your word. Lord, help us allow you to frame the conversation in the way that you would frame it biblically so that we can be transformed. We can be the disciples that you would have us to be. We know you're coming soon, Lord Jesus. And we know based on this dream that you're in the process of setting up a kingdom that will last forever. Lord, may we each be part of that wonderful kingdom, that eternal kingdom. Bless us as we go, and Lord, bless us as we keep your Sabbath. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.